What is going on, everybody? It's yours truly, OK. Here, welcome back, guys, to episode number two of the Wrestling Retrospective podcast. I guess you can call it show, whatever the hell you want to call this thing, where we take a look back at the long, lengthy career, uh, more so in detail and in depth than probably you imagine or even cared to remember of your favorite members of the pro wrestling world. We did a killer debut episode, and I got here my my Robin to my Batman, the Silent Bob to my Jay. Mr. Jake DeMarco. Countdown ended. What's going on, Jake? What's going on? Glad to be here yet again. We had a blast last time. Anybody that hasn't listened to it yet, make sure you go ahead and tune in uh, the first episode covering Dolph Ziggler. Even if Ziggler's not your uh, per se cup of tea, going through his history and hearing all he had to endure, uh, quite interesting to see where he is now So and how he got there. Great right. listen if you're a fan of the business. Yeah, the, the first episode, um, f- for those of you who guys know us and know how much we are wrestling geeks and nerds from hearing us on, like, Out of Nowhere, and of course Jake does uh, Joe Cronin's Raw and SmackDown reviews and pay-per-view reviews, and, and you hear my stuff, you guys know how much how we're, much we're wrestling geeks, and so when it's... When we're diving into this stuff, it's really interesting to find stuff that we just like de- 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 like completely blocked out. Jake even said on the on the Ziggler one, there were years that we like just blocked out completely when it comes to like certain wrestlers <laughs> or just just years in the business. And so, really, the the Ziggler one, I said this to um, numerous people who have spread this out. We got a lot of a lot of positive feedback about the Dolph Ziggler one. Uh, some of it said it was. Uh, I I still say and I still stand by. It was like one of the best things content wise I've ever produced. So it was really. Awesome to do that with Jake. Um, Puts but, a smile on my face. But it was really like, uh, I said to Jake before we started, I'm like, if we can get an hour out of this, we'll be fine. And we ended up going two fucking hours talking about <laughs> Ziggler. I'm not kidding you. Two hours and like two minutes about Dolph Ziggler. And it was just really interesting to kind of dive in. And that's kind of what this whole show is about. Now, another quick little update I want to give you guys on uh, the way this show is going to go is that this will be a new monthly thing. It will be available on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash okfaber. It's also going to be on all major audio pop, uh, podcasting platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, all that stuff, where you can pick up all the raw reviews and stuff as well. So we'll have that in audio format, but if you guys want access to it early and a chance to vote in on who you want us to talk about next in depth, hit us up on the Patreon at patreon.com slash okfabe. You get, a, you get it a month in advance, so you guys will actually be able to hear this uh, a month before everybody else. Originally, this was going to be a Patreon exclusive, but the more positive feedback we got, I'm like, I can't hide this from people. We got to we gotta get this and spread this out to the masses. And uh, this month, That's right, so that means you're likely listening to this in 2019, but you could have heard it before Christmas. That's how much you're missing out. Well, <laughs> Yeah, that's the that's the dealio. We haven't picked out the third person, the the, the third uh, episode yet, but I'm sure we're gonna pick someone very interesting. Actually, gotta give love and shout out to Gorilla Strong, who has been a supporter of myself, of Joe, so many people uh, who actually he suggest- as well. He's, he's he's been fantastic to everybody. He's oh, just yeah. such a great guy overall, and you know, fantastic, beneficial, and and you know, such a kind kind you know human being. So. Yeah, and uh, he actually gave the suggestion of doing uh, the person we're talking about today, which is Sean Waltman X-Pac, who uh, we were talking about this before we got on the air. It is interesting, again, going back and kind of deep diving into a wrestler who might be your favorite or uh, who is fondly remembered in like the Attitude Era or certain times in the business, and there were so many different things, just before we get into the detail and depths of the whole thing about this, is how really he didn't have long stints in major companies. And we were talking about this a little bit beforehand. Before we got yeah, I mean, last time for Dolph Ziggler, I was able to go ahead and, and not just ask people for their favorite matches and moments, 
but I was able to look up a breadth and wealth of those type of like polls and, and opinion pieces. For Waltman, I see a lot of favorite moments, but not matches. And in hindsight, you know, looking back, it's like, wow, you know, he his body of work is rather limited compared to how long he's been active in wrestling. And, you know, he certainly had a major impact on the business and to, you know, smaller athletes in general. He was certainly a pioneer, you know, that that was one of the things that he's most known for is, you know, taking down the big guys. Granted, you know, he, he's certainly been a standout performer, but I, I don't think he ever reached the levels that either he could have or should have. And it, it's interesting to, to really go ahead and take it all in and see what he accomplished with what few opportunities he was given. And on top of that, you know, you, you look here, you see, you know, how over he was at certain points in times, you know, especially early Attitude Era, and how some people viewed him as, as worthless, you know, that he had n- nothing to, to benefit. You know, a lot of people say, oh, he was terrible. He couldn't work a good match. He couldn't talk. He had the charisma of roadkill, I saw often. But then you had Jeez. other people, yeah, you know, being out, you know, outlandishly harsh. But they backed it up with their own opinion and their support and facts. And the thing is, I, after a while, you're like, oh, wow, I can see where you're coming from. But then again, you look at it from a fan's point of view, and it's like, wow, he really did contribute so much. So right. he's, he's very, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a colorful history, as you know. And, uh, you know, there, there's certainly a lot to cover here. Well, the thing is, like, and, you know, like we were just mentioning in terms of more moments, and then that's what we're trying to do here. We did in the Ziggler one where we counted down. Jake was doing an excellent job of talking, like, the top five Ziggler matches you should watch. And sometimes we might run into this problem where we might not find matches. We might find moments. Like, I know instantly off the top of my head we're talking, you know, the one, two, three kid, um, Razor Ramon, when he beat Razor at the Hammerstein Ballroom on one of the first Raws, and just the place went absolutely fucking nuts. I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, but that that's the big thing, too, about this is that series. And that we're here, we're not here to bury any wrestlers. I mean, we're going to obviously cut it, you know, call it like it is. We did on the Ziggler one. We talked about the great moments and matches that we loved about him. We talked about the m- parts that were just like, man, that was really shitty. And we're not going to hear, like, to just, like, bury the guy or bury the wrestler. I mean, hell, no. if, if Ziggler or X-Pac listens to any of this stuff, I, um... Number one, I'm I'm fucking petrified. Number two, um, <laughs> always been a fan and, and yeah, always I, respected what he's brought forth and how he he truly spat in the face of adversity. He right. overcame so many obstacles, whether it be you know size and stature to ring ability to uh, you know just just the lack of opportunities due to how he was viewed at times to you know uh, just. One thing after another, you know, he was able to overcome it all and make himself a mainstay to the point where people are still talking about him to this day. He's still relevant. He was in one of the top factions of all time. You know, he was not just not. (laughs) Well, yeah, technically, that's true. That is true. And, you know, he not only was was, you know, an active member of the roster, but he truly was impactful in those, you know, separate (laughs) divisions as well. So. Right. All right. So I guess we might as well cut right to the chase and let's talk right about this. This is probably going to be just a heads up, probably going to be a shorter episode compared to the Dolph Ziggler one, because God knows I, I'm still surprised we went two hours. But anyway, let's jive right into Sean Waltman. And by the way, that's the other part of this, too, is that we are going to cover his entire career, not just WWF. Uh, we're also going to talk about his run in WCW, his run in TNA. So we're going to do Sean Waltman, Six Pac, X Pac, One, Two, Three Kid, you know, all those 
all those different personas are going to be covered. So when we're, when we're talking about a wrestler's you know, career, we're talking about all their different incarnations. I am terrified if we're going to do The Undertaker. I'm just throwing that out there right now because we will need like probably a five-parter on that one. I'm not even kidding. Yeah, that's going to be... Uh... <laughs> yeah, we'll be dead. No, no pun intended. And uh, apologies in advance. You probably can hear in my voice that I'm a little still under the weather. Uh, we're recording this right around Christmas time. So yeah, just... The, the gift that keeps on giving, Dayquil, comes in two colors, red and green, just like Christmas. Um, so I apologize for the, 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 the way that my voice is sounding, and I sound like, um, you know, James Earl Jones a little bit here. What uh, Maybe that might make for a pleasant experience on audio. I don't know. Fuck it. Let's do it live. Um, so Xbox... Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> so Sean Wallman actually started off... Uh, his training, and this is just right off the bat that I didn't even was blown away by for. He was trained under a, a, a various amount of different uh, legendary wrestlers. Carl Gotch was also a big one. But the two big names that popped up in my uh, feed when I was doing the research was Boris and Joe Malenko, which Boris is the father of the legendary cruiserweight wrestler Dean Malenko. So it's just very interesting that... X-Pac 6, Sean Waltman, gets trained by the father of a guy who'll have matches with in WCW, you know, what, 10 years later. It's, it, it's just funny how that shit uh, turns around. So he does a lot of independent stuff uh, before he gets to WWF in 1993. He starts off his career as the Lightning Kid. He worked his way through various independent promotions, PWA, Pro Wrestling America, Global Wrestling Federation, uh, including winning the, I guess, I think he won the PWA, Light Heavyweight, Iron Horse TV, uh, tag team titles uh, while working for that promotion and apparently he worked extensively with Jerry Lynn who of course Jerry Lynn uh, no, most notably for his contributions in ECW against Van Dam, legendary matches of that kind and also his kind of like his resurgence in both TNA in its infancy stage with the X Division and of course later on in Ring of Honor um, and even one, you know face each other a lot in fact that was one of the people he won the tag titles with so get this Fun, fun trivia fact, Sean Waltman and Jerry Lynn, former fucking tag team champions, would not want to mess with that team at all. No, not at all. Not one bit, that's for sure. Uh, so he continued working on in various different promotions towards the Northeast, uh, apparently called himself the Lightning Kid, and then, of course, uh, there was a horrible situation where, you ready for this? He was working in 1992, so this was not too long before he got signed to WWF, November of 1992. He was facing an opponent named the Kamikaze Kid, Bill Wilcox. Uh, Bill, the Kamikaze Kid overshot a suicide dive and actually landed on Waltman's head, driving it to the concrete and causing a fucking blood clot near his brain. He was hospitalized for three days, could not work for four months, and actually was told by doctors that he should quit wrestling. Yeah, they, he was he was being convinced to force to retire at that, that point in time. That's insane. And this type of blood clot was uh, what just recently occurred when that man was hit in the head with a cinder block. Mm -hmm. You know that we're, we were discussing recently in that death match in Mexico. Ugh. I mean, that's the kind of impact. It was it was the force of a cinder block being hurled at his head that he hit the ground with, and luckily he didn't need surgery to remove the clot. But you know, the hospital short was stay. But the rehab took quite a long time. I mean, four months of not being able to work out at all, you know, no no wrestling, no gym, nothing. But that's nuts to just think that, like, he hasn't been in the business at this point for four years, and he hasn't even made it to the big leagues. And so this was right before he came. Like, I'm trying to find the actual date that he started in my notes here. Um, but it looks like he had a tryout match uh, after WrestleMania 11, which was 93. So that was April, right? March or April. So this is four months before. And so essentially... He has this match, 
that has this that that he gets the horrible blood clot and then goes almost almost right into the tryout match to to WWF. That's it's crazy. Incredible. They, you know, like I said, so much that he's overcome throughout the years. Right here, you know, very beginning of his career. Already, he has a a crucial injury that that basically takes him, yeah, you know, out of the running, puts him on the shelf, and and threatens his career like no other. And the fact that he was able to not only survive and come back and get back into the business, but take that and turn it into a successful gimmick in the WWF soon after yeah. was <laughs> astounding. What? So then uh, I'll let Jake take it from here. We're talking about his uh, debut. Of course, he did have, like I said, a tryout match uh, the day after WrestleMania 11 against uh, Louis Spicoli, who was also trying to uh, have a tryout at the same time. Um, he said it was a very WrestleMania good... nine. No, I'm sorry, nine. Excuse me, nine. I keep okay. saying eleven. I keep saying eleven. Fuck, I, <laughs> I do the same nine. thing all the time too. Fucking Roman numerals. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you know they weren't at first overly interested with him. They they kind of viewed him more like a, a Virgil or Jim Powers. You know, he made his TV de- uh, debut as the Kamikaze Kid on Monday Night Raw, May third, and he lost to Doink the Clown. He then became the Cannonball Kid, then simply just the Kid. So already he's had you know quite a few name change and gimmick changes. Uh, it was here that he would go ahead and have probably one of the, the biggest matches, I could even say, of his career that people still speak to of this day. He takes on Razor, Marone, uh, Razor Ramon, can't talk either, on the May 17th episode of Monday Night Raw. And he went ahead and scored an upset pinfall on yep. Razor at this time, yep. thus becoming the one, two, three kid. Now it's interesting because he hadn't, he hadn't really been. He, he, you know, they kept just changing the kid thing. So he went from Kamikaze, like you said, from Kamikaze to Cannonball to Kid, and then became the one, two, three kid. Um, after getting the one, two, after, three, on after after getting this, yeah. So for those of you wondering how he got that nickname, well, there, which I honestly I didn't even realize. I was so dumb to think like that huge moment. And really, I think they showed it on the. Um, the Raw 25th anniversary because it was obviously a huge moment. But think of like that, like, you know, Raw was what? Not even five months old at that point because it debuted yes. in January of 93. So it wasn't even five months old. And, and still, to this day, it's still argued, you know, as one of the big – you go back and watch. It's a huge pop Still one moment. of the top ten moments, I believe, on that countdown. So I think you're right, yeah. And, and the thing is, too, is that, you know, nowadays we see people of, you know, Waltman's size akin to a Daniel Bryan, you know, things of that. You know, we see the cruiserweights taking on people of a, of a larger size, not as common as it was in the Attitude Era. But, you know, at this point in wrestling, it was unheard of. You didn't really, unless it was a gimmick match meant to be angled as a squash, this wasn't something you saw. So for someone as notorious and infamous as Razor Ramon, to suffer a loss on TV to someone, you know, who was as new as green and as small in size as Waltman was, was beyond unheard of. People couldn't fathom it. So it, it made people immediately tune into Raw to see who this is. And the way that they followed up on this angle was even better because Razor challenges it to a rematch wagering $10,000 of his own money. And, of course, one two three kid accepts the challenge, grabbed the money, and ran from the arena during the match. Genius. I mean, that's fantastic. He, he knew that he wouldn't be able to get the upper hand on him twice. He's not going to be able to get that roll-up. So what's he going to do? 
take the money and run. <laughs> it's and, beautiful. Well, the other part to kind of piggyback off what you were saying earlier was having like not only like a virtual nobody get a victory over uh, Razor like this, which really I'm trying to think about like uh, moments, and and I can't think back this far, but like moments where you had like someone make their debut. Um, and have such a huge win and then go on to like bigger and better things like Kurt Angle comes to mind but like I can't really like maybe I don't want to say Santino Morella but like you know how Morella was like popped out of the crowd and beat Umaga for the IC title on his debut yeah I can't really think of too many other moments like that I mean maybe John Cena but he lost you know yeah. so there's not that many like that and then also just to kind of also set the stage here as far as the um the time frame we're talking 1993 Light heavyweights and cruiserweights, as we'll talk about when we get to um, WCW, were not that big right now. No pun intended. Um, so to have you know him thrusted into again, like you said, Razor being a very well established mid card guy, and then we later on, which we'll, I'm sure you'll get to in a second, with the whole thing with DiBiase, is pretty massive. Yeah. Um, to be spotlighted that that easy and or not that easy, but that quickly. Uh, again, we saw what his his TV debut was May third. So you're talking two weeks later. Two weeks yeah. later. I mean, you figure too. I mean, he wasn't overly ostentatious. You know, he he at this point in time, you know, Walman wasn't really showboaty. He wasn't you know brash and vulgar and loud or overly extravagant. You know, he was still building into this character. And, but the fans were behind him immediately. As soon as he got that pinfall victory, the fans just wanted to see more. Right. It was an instant hit. And this is where, you know, DiBiase, who was already feuding with Razor, uh, kind of taunts Razor Ramon about losing to 1-2-3-Kid. And this really upset Waltman. So that led to a match in which he also beat Ted DiBiase as well. So now he's got <laughs> two, you know, huge victories. Right. You know, two notches in his belt. So shortly after, Razor turns face and takes Waltman under his wing, and they become a, a bit of a duo here. Now we go all the way to SummerSlam, and this is his pay-per-view debut. And unfortunately, he loses to IRS. Ouch. And yeah, you know, so that's DiBiase's tag partner. And Razor did defeat DiBiase that night, but... You know, at least he, he got a, a good reception. The match was viewed as, you know, a success overall by the fans, and people were still behind him at this point. It was okay that he lost. People weren't too upset. No, and uh, but again, though, just the idea that they thrusted him so quickly into that spotlight was just kind of like surreal in, in a yeah, case. Yeah, mind-blowing. Right. And then I know that, and I'm skipping around a little bit here, but I know we go to Survivor Series, right, because he's teamed with he's teamed with Razor. Yes. And then it's them with... This is a four-on-four elimination match. Actually, yeah. He and Marty Jannetty were the only two sole survivors, which I don't think back then it wasn't as big a deal as they're making it now, which I think is a shame because I feel like when they, like, when they add, like, when they they boast up, like, oh, they were the sole survivor. And there's my James Earl Jones voice coming in. Um, I feel like it's put more emphasis and importance now, and I wish, especially back then, when you had, like them looking to create new stars, that they would have utilized that more. I mean, granted, um, him and Janae would go on to not only become, but win the tag team titles um, after being the, what, the Quebecers? Yeah, the Quebecers, um, yeah. which I don't know how much of a victory that really is, but hey, I'll take what it is. Not much of a momentous <laughs> occasion, but still a victory nonetheless. And, right. you know, gave him a chance to hold some gold in the WWF at this point. 
And from here out, you know, he was always a, a fan favorite, still that underdog. His size, you know, made him a spectacle. And he went on to have some, you know, really fantastic matches all in all as time continued on. So. Yep. Now I know you were. We were talking about this a little bit earlier when we we were talking about you know like um, <laughs> how Jake was doing his <laughs> research for this, and he was trying to look for X Pac matches. And yeah, I was kept... asking a lot of people, you know, what were your favorite X Pac matches? And people were like, oh, I loved Owen Hart versus the One Two Three Kid at King of the Ring '94. And I'm like, okay, but what about X Pac? And they're like, well, I I really enjoyed you know One Two Three Kid versus Rick Martel, you know, back in October that. I was like, yeah, but what about X-Pac? They're like, oh, one, two, three kid took on Marty Jannetty. That was great. Or when he, you know, it was like, uh, I get I get what you're saying here, but uh, I think you're missing what I'm asking for. So, And then the, and that's what we rolled really much right into right at this point. But it's just it's it's just so funny how it's like, no, no X-Pac, just one, two, three. And so, again, going back to what we were talking about this at the beginning of the of the podcast, of this episode was that, you know, X-Pac, which we'll get into when he goes back to WWF, is hard. But I feel like in terms of WWF quality matches, this is right around the time that we're getting some good stuff. Absolutely. So, um, you know, like we said, he, he continued to have a lot of great matches. Uh, he even uh, took on Bam Bam Bigelow, Bob Holly, and uh, then he lost to the Smoking Guns on Raw, you know, but... It, you know, he he failed to win back the tag team championship from Billy Gunn and Bart Gunn uh, with Razor back in October '95. So they attacked the Guns after the match to tease a heel turn. And on Raw before this '95 Survivor Series in November, he was the guest referee between Razor Ramon and Psycho Sid. And as Razor attempted his finisher, the Razor's Edge, Kid pulled Sid down from Razor, allowing Sid to then hit Razor with his power bomb. And uh, Waltman fast counted the pinfall, thus turning heel. Uh oh! Dun 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 dun. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so this was at. Um, I'm trying to think of like time frame where we're at now because I'm trying to lose track of my notes here. So we're at. We're heading into SummerSlam '95. Okay. Yep. Okay. Now I remember here. Um, so this is kind of where. I wasn't really big on him at this point in time. Yeah, the heel turn didn't quite fit. The crowd still wanted to cheer him. People were enjoying him. I remember, you know, like, I, I just didn't care for it. I didn't want to boo him, but I didn't have a reason to like him at this time either. You know, he loses to Hakushi at Survivor Series, or excuse me, SummerSlam, and then wins the rematch thanks to DiBiase in November, but... It was like, okay, not a, not really a big deal. And even when he was the sole survivor, you know, beating Marty Jannetty at Survivor Series, I still didn't have much of like a, a care for him at this point, unfortunately, because I just saw him more as the underdog. They weren't really doing much with his heel run at this point either. He was just kind of, you know, needing outside interference to win, whether it was DiBiase helping him or the Million Dollar Corporation. You know, there was always some type of, uh, you know, nefarious means for him to to get the victory. So it never felt like he was accomplishing things on his own or doing it himself. Thus, I mean, gaining the heel heat, but giving us less of a, a reason to find him interesting and believe in him at the same time. Yeah, I, I just remember I, I when I was going back and watching this, it's like, yeah, you, you could see that just it, it didn't. I don't know. It just it didn't feel natural. I mean, we saw him. Later on, you know, I don't want to jump ahead of your your of the chronology here, but and I can definitely see when we get to um, 
towards the end of his WWF run right now, because right now we're in SummerSlam 95, towards the summer of 96 is when he leaves, and then he's going to jump over to WCW, which is a mix of two different issues, but I don't see, I don't, I could definitely see why, I could start to see the signs as why he would jump, you know what I mean? Yeah, it certainly seemed that way. I mean, he loses anyway. a, a, yeah, he loses a crybaby match to Razor Ramon in your house six, and oh, you yeah, know the diaper shit. Oh my god! Yeah, that that was horrendous. Didn't need to happen. Really, that was a, a, a just insulting to him in, in both men in general. I mean, but whoever was going to have to go with that punishment, you know, certainly it was undeserving and, and just unnecessary. I feel. Yeah, no, it, it really wasn't, and that's and that's kind of like I was saying. Don't really. I could definitely see from a creative standpoint uh, why he'd be interested to go. Now, remember, yeah, the cracks were showing in the foundation, right? And it, it wasn't wasn't too long after this that we're starting to see, uh, you know, a lot of the jumps happen. You know, at this point, yeah, right at this point in time, you know, NWO is forming and, and things are starting to take, uh, you know, take stage on Nitro. Yep, and. It, it, you know, obviously the grass certainly seems greener and you look at it as a whole. I mean, what is he, what has he accomplished, uh, especially since turning heel? The most he did was, was signed with the million dollar corporation and joined them because I mean, him and razor won the tag titles at one point right. and he held them very briefly before that, Yep. you know, when they beat the Quebecers, him and Marty. So really he, he only had a small taste of gold and the rest of the time he was losing or you know winning through outside interference he wasn't doing anything for himself and then obviously the, the crybaby match was just the the shit sprinkle on the shit sunday so and that's exactly why we ran into this problem of like finding like good xbox matches because yeah. you know you have like the it's a very weird scenario and again it's amazing what you find when you go back and you really analyze someone's career where Pac came in with a uh, especially with the win over Razor, huge, a pretty good amount of momentum. It kind of carried him for a little bit, got a tag team win. But again, going back to the whole idea of, you know, WBF, especially at this time, being the land of the Giants, you know, and, and, and smaller guys. Although it's weird because Brett and Sean were on top now. So it's a, such a weird... I don't know. It's just is a weird dynamic. But um, he was a true workhorse, you know, that plucky underdog. I was he about to say that. Yeah, yeah. Any of his competitors, any time, you know, he had the the heart, the drive, the determination needed to best his opponents. The only problem was he was lacking star power at this time. He didn't have really a, a gimmick that shined when compared to people that were on the top at this point. So, I mean, that hurt him in the long run. The the one, two, three gimmick was really ran its course rather quickly, I, I felt. And then on top of it, um, it, it just, you know, it didn't really suit him with who he was being paired with. It always felt like it was. Hey, everyone, I just want to remind you to make sure you check out the awesome people over at Anchor.fm. Of course, it is a great place for you to host your own podcast. And guess what? One of the cool parts is that it's totally free. Yeah, that's right, free. There's even creation tools that allow you to record and edit your own podcast right from your computer or even your phone. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so many others. Trust me, it's so easy. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place if you guys want to get in on it make sure you download the free anchor app or just simply go to anchor.fm to get started it was you know he was the plus one 
It was, you know, yeah, uh, when no, he, actually, no matter which a, team he was, he was the plus one. He, were, that was he was added in. He was an afterthought. And, Third wheel. Uh, un, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I mean, no, no matter what we saw from him, and he would have great matches, like I said, but, you know, he continued on to be very popular in the mid card, but WWE kind of looked, you know, like he wasn't meeting up to their standards. So Which is they funny felt like a heel turn would, would you know, freshen him up a little bit and when he betrayed Razor, but it, right. it just didn't do anything to get him uh, a new sense of heat or interest with the crowd. Now, it's interesting because, and again... We'll, we'll we'll get more into detail and whatever. Keep saying it over and over again, but like looking broad spectrum, right? Great matches, a couple of championships in WWF, WCW. In my opinion, as far as his accolades go, had his best run. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that I, in a second. I can agree with that. Plus, on his on his way out, you know his his last televised match, um, I believe would be May twentieth on Monday Night Raw. Yep. And he lost to Savio Vega, so he was uh, also a little little you know fun fact here. He was the only member of the clique not involved in the curtain call that took place at Madison Square Garden the night before his final match. So Dude, that uh, like blew my mind when I read that. I'm like, oh my god, how did we not think of that? You know, what yeah. I mean? like, and the reason like... why is because he was in rehab, so he was in drug rehab, and this is where some of his demons start to come to light. Right, and justifiably so though at this point because he had been working he was their workhorse they used him week in and week out he was doing not just the televised and pay-per-view circuit but he was also doing the house shows continually when you go back and you look at his um, match records he was wrestling multiple times a week sometimes multiple times a day for WWF at this point injuries started to mount bumps bruises you know, whatever it may be, there was never any major injury, I believe, up until this point from what I, I looked into, but they added up. He was, he was, you know, just beaten and bruised, never really given the time to heal, constantly on the road. And as you started to have these other stars, the Bret Hart's, the Shawn Michaels, be able to say, well, I'm not going to do the house shows. You had, you know, I, obviously Hogan was, was on his, you know, already out at this point. But before right. that saying, well, I'm only going to be at this show and that show, naming his price. Waltman didn't have that luxury. So here he was being there. There, You know, I keep going back to it, but his workhorse and, like you know, bag, basically. Yeah, exactly. And, great, great way to put that. And the other problem is, and again, I don't want to I'm not trying to like ridicule him for this. But again, smaller guy. So if you, it, compared to some of the other bigger stars there, so not only are you running him more ragged, but because of his stature compared to the average uh, performer, he is more susceptible to injuries. And it's very, very interesting that he did not get injured at this point in time. Then again, he almost had a, he fucking had a blood clot right before he came to WWF. So just like yeah, WWF. So, I mean, you see him overcome that you know that that harrowed injury to you know to start his career off before he makes it essentially to the big leagues. Now he's in rehab after suffering, you know, minor injuries time and time and time again, which leads to addiction and something that was, you know, hard for him to deal with and cope with. Right. I mean, later we know he would be sidelined with a severe neck injury, which would get him fired by Bischoff. I mean, that that's way down the line, but you know, these, these are things that he was never able really to to shed himself from at least not for many decades you know that that yeah drug abuse stayed with him for, for many, many many years unfortunately a couple of times yeah now um 
it's interesting because so again, Xbox at this point in time he has gone from WWF. So now we're into the summer of '96. Um, the curtain call. I'm trying to remember the actual date of the curtain call. So that was April. Uh, I thought it was. It's. Uh, I'm trying to find the actual date of that here. Here we go. Yeah. I'm sorry. May '96. I'm sorry. May 1996. Yeah, it was 19th. Okay, May okay, 19th. Yeah, because yeah, this last match was the day after May 20th. Right. And okay. He wasn't there the night before because of the drug rehab. So. Right. Okay. So that means that he's gone at this point. So basically, the summer of 1996, we don't see him whatsoever. And then he starts to show up in WCW. Now, uh, just to give you guys a quick, you know, again, recap of what WCW is doing at this point in time. The NWO has been formed three months prior. So Hogan Hall, Nash, I think Big Show is with them at this point. So they're starting to, yeah, because he's the he's the fourth uh, or the fifth. No, no, he's the fifth. He's the fifth. Um, so at this point, it's Hogan he's the, Hall. He's the sixth member, actually. That's why he was called six. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Oh, it was DiBiase. That's right. Ironically, yeah. Enough. So yeah. yeah. So you have Hogan Hall, Nash, uh, Giant, Big Show. Ted DiBiase is the fifth member, and so on September 16th, Waltman showing in the front row of live episode of Nitro. Later that night, he stood and used a remote control to release uh, an NWO propaganda with the ceiling, which I thought was absolutely effing genius. Like yeah, that was, was that was great. Yep he uh, he says he's six because he's sixth number uh, member of the NWO, and six is the sum of the numbers one, two, three in Kid, which I thought was genius. Um, now. The, the interesting thing about this, and I just wanted to make a little bit note of this, is that the way he was introduced to WCW, and this kind of goes back in the um, the real realism of the way WCW had things and how they introduced new people, just like them hanging out. It, it almost, I almost got like NXT Takeover flashbacks when you get like when you see the new person in the front row. I kind of got like that little like vibe a little bit, but at the same time, it's like from the announcer's perspective, like, oh, he's not supposed to be here. Wait, what's going on? Like, huh, what? And again, just genius from WCW to create the buzz and interest of like, oh, shit, we haven't seen him in three months. Now he's over here. What the fuck is going on? Yeah, that's for sure. And it was it was certainly a surprise, especially seeing everybody that was jumping ship and where they were going, where they were landing. And, you know, you, you hear things on the dirt sheets with him, you know, with his addiction issues and, you know, possibly being done. You also hear rumors of, you know, injuries sign him for good, you know. So there was there was a lot of rumors at that point. So seeing him live on TV was certainly, uh, you know, quite surprising. And, now, and when you look back, you know, as you said here before, you know, on paper, as far as accolades go, this was certainly one of his most successful runs. Yes. But a lot of view it, a lot of people tend to view this as his most unsuccessful time as a whole because he starts off pretty, you know, pretty hot. Obviously, he's right in, he's with the NWO, you know, he gets himself into that faction, new name, all right, he's 6. Uh, he goes ahead and he gets himself in a, in a very memorable, probably his most memorable match in WCW, the ladder match with Eddie Guerrero at the sold-out yep. pay-per-view. Yep. Uh, that's in January 97. And he even won the Cruiserweight Championship shortly thereafter from Dean Malenko. That was just a month uh, after his ladder match with Eddie Guerrero. Right. But then from there, again, he starts to fizzle out. He gets a chance to, uh, again, feud with the big dogs, you know, get up with, with the main eventers. Before it was Razor, now it's Ric Flair. And he ends up, you know, basically getting a, a, quite a few losses um, him, Kevin Nash, Buff Bagwell, and Conan end up defeating the Four Horsemen 
but that was only after Henning betrayed the Horsemen and joined the NWO. Right. So, so it, it was Kurt a, Henning had to go ahead and, and and again, there's that nefarious means, you know, that that outside interference angle. You know, that that's one of the things a lot of fans brought to mind and the attention. Dusty finish. Yeah. Yeah. So th- this is another, and this is kind of a tough call for me because, as I said to you. You're right. Accolades wise, this is probably his best run because in WWF, spoiler alert, um, he wins. Obviously, he was looking at his accolades. He's been um, European champion, he's been European champion, light heavyweight, um, tagged. He's been cruiserweight champion when they were owned by WWF, when it was like the WCW owned by WWF, and of course, tag team champion four different times. Um, in WCW, he was only tag team and cruiserweight, but I felt like because he was part of the NWO, he was obviously highlighted more. And, and it's a very, I don't know, for me it's bittersweet because on one hand... And he so, was United States heavyweight champion as well. I don't know if he, was he U.S. champion? I thought, didn't he beat uh, Guerrero for that no, belt? I thought, he, no, he didn't. Oh, no, he, he didn't. Okay, yeah, he lost, he lost that match. Okay, no, I, all right. I had, I, had to double, I had to double check that one too. Yeah. But, um... But um, I just watched that match back, and you're right, he did lose. But uh, you know, there's so close. many titles. Yeah, I, I know. Fuck sakes. It was it, that, that's what I just said before. It was Malenko that he beat. So that's it was, w- it was WCW in the '90s. How did I get anybody? Yeah, track so many belts and so many. <laughs> <laughs> don't even start. Don't even get me started on NWA. If you go like, if you go back and look at the history of the NWA in like the '50s and '60s, and look at the fucking titles, Jesus Christ, there's weight. Seriously, like, so look. trying to follow it, that lineage, and they all had such fuck. similar names too, as well. You know. Well, because every fucking state had their own title, and then on top of that, every state had their own tag team title, and then anyway, I'm getting off on a tangent. Anyway, <laughs> point being, hard to keep track of. Um, but here's the thing: it's a, it, it is almost a little bit of a parallel to what happened in WWF. Comes in hot, comes in with a pretty hot angle, and while he doesn't come out on top, he obviously winning the cruiserweight championship was big because that was his first singles title that he won at that point in time because he hadn't won anything. It was just tag team championships at that point in time. So, And especially where the Cruiserweight division was at that state, you had Malenko, you had Jericho, you had uh, Juventud. That's why I feel like match quality-wise, his best stuff, in my opinion, was in WCW because you put him in with the other lighter weight guys who were fucking killing it. I make it no secret that I'm a huge cruiserweight mark. Love the X division, yeah. like, like no bones about it. Because some of the stuff they pull off is fucking insane. From from back then to 205 Live now, yeah, even I'm with watch, you. Even though I watched, even though I don't really watch 205 Live anymore, <laughs> but <laughs> but the talent um, there can't be denied. Exactly, yeah. and so I feel like. For me, and this is just a personal opinion, this is probably my favorite time for him as far as like looking back and watching some incredible stuff. I watched the match with Dean Malenko. That was fun. I watched it when he lost to uh, Jericho. Uh, or he had matches like Rey Mysterio and others. Lo- love that. But as soon as like that happens, that was, you know, that was from about the end, uh, from like the first six months of 97, right? So again, 96, he's just part of the NWO background, but then like the first six months of 97, really focusing on being like the NWO representative of the cruiserweight division. And then from there, they try to weasel him in, but then it just kind of gets all... That's what I'm saying. He starts to play with the big boys, and I I hate putting it like that, but like you said, he gets away from the cruiserweights where he's shown that he has great strength, and he sinks. He doesn't get a chance to swim here. He, He flounders... Teaming with you know uh, Conan, Buff Bagwell, Kevin Nash, going up against Ric Flair, teaming with Scott Hall, you know th- this is when the Wolfpack 
rules came into effect, basically the Freebird rules. Yeah. And they allowed Sean to go ahead and replace the injured Kevin Nash at that point in time, which can't help but laugh, Kevin Nash and injuries. Uh, so they defended the tag team championships against, you know, a, a, you know, a few different opponents, but they ended up losing to the Steiner brothers. So Rick and Scott Steiner got the best of them on October 13th, 97. Yep. Now, Right after that, a neck injury sidelines uh, Waltman from wrestling, and he continues to appear on TV. So this is October 97, and he's still on TV for a few weeks after. But while recuperating at home, he was fired via FedEx by Eric Bischoff himself. Now, Sean claims this was a power play aimed at his friends Holland Nash, whose backstage influence was felt as a threat. And, you know, a bit of an underhanded move here. Bischoff later said that Waltman was a competent performer when sober, but sober periods were few and far between. And in many ways, Sean was lucky to even have a job. So at first we think it's, you know, oh, look, Bischoff's on this power trip and, you know, he's threatened by, you know, higher level performers. And, you know, the wrestlers are just running things in the back. And, you know, there's all these nefarious and, and awful things going on behind the scenes. And really come to find out those demons that he fought hard to get away from before, they're now, not only back, they're back tenfold. Now, it's interesting you brought this up because I, um, as we talked about before, I listen to a, lot, a bunch of wrestling podcasts. And one of my more recent favorites, obviously, is 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. And it's interesting that we brought this up because he actually went into very, very big detail as to why he fired um, Sean Waltman. And it was not mostly because of his abuse issues, which is which is interesting. So this might be a little compounded. But I'm going to try to like breeze through this explanation as fast as I can, and, he, and I'm going to quote him from the from the podcast. And so basically, what happened was number one, he said he regret doing it via FedEx, um, and he said that um, basically he had reached an agreement and letter of intent on renewing with Waltman he said of course that took a couple weeks maybe a little longer he said uh, wheels uh, you know it just it took a little while uh, Turner Legal was separate from WCW so it, it you know um, it, it was they it handled was, business on their own correct side. right yeah. it's like you know he, he, they, he couldn't do anything about you know it just took time and then what happened was he said uh, they made a deal and everything was agreed on. Bischoff said Waltman knew how much he was going to make and everything was just waiting for the final legal stages to new contract. Then he explained how things went south on the on, uh, on the deal in a very big way quickly. He says when Dan Diana Miners, who was the representative for Turner Legal, um, finally got around to the deal and sh to, to Sean and his agent, who's named Barry, I guess, uh, balked on the deal. They just, they just said, nope, nope, we're not doing it. Nah. And it pissed Bischoff off. He says, there's no way I could let that happen if I were to have let it fly. If I would have renegotiated after we come to terms, there would have just been chaos even more. So he said, fuck it, you're out of here. And he says, I intentionally wanted to make an example of Sean because at a certain point, you have to draw the line, and I drew it and I cut Sean loose. He goes, that was a mistake. Well, it wasn't a mistake. I was justified in doing it because it was just my opinion that it was about it was just about holding someone up or real close to it, and I just couldn't do it. But in doing so, I really didn't think it through, so I was hot. Um, so I was pissed off. I was mainly pissed off at Barry more than Sean. Yeah. So it, it was interesting because a lot of people, especially, um, did not expect him to go back. Did not expect Sean to go back to um, 
to go back to uh, WWE. But it's very interesting that even though the 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 personal issues, the uh, substance abuse or whatever you want to call it, um, is a very easy thing to lean on. It, it's glad I'm glad to hear Bischoff actually like kind of lay everything out and say like. It was more. And by the way, he actually admits that the the agent that he signed up with with Waltman, uh, that like he recommended, and so he's even more pissed about that because it's like you know he turned around and bit the hand that fed him. Yeah, exactly. Sheesh. But um, but again, very parallel, creatively, very parallel, different careers in terms or uh, circumstances as far as his first run in WWF and his run in WCW. But personally, I felt he had more. I don't know, maybe just me. I feel like he had better quality matches in WCW because he was with the cruiserweights. Maybe that's just because I'm a cruiserweight mark. It's very hard for me I to I think tell. it's also because when you look at how much of an innovator he was and how hard he busted his ass. I mean, he worked so hard until he could barely walk. Most guys his age are still working in some fashion. He isn't because he works so hard that he has nothing left to give. Well, he certainly gave a lot more when he showed up to uh, showed back up to WWF. So let's see. This point, he was in October. So around the October time frame of 1998, he was, or excuse me, 1997, he was let go. And so on March 30th, 1998, in a very famous segment, the night after WrestleMania 14, got my Roman numerals right on that fucking one, um, <laughs> and days after his firing from WCW, this is, of course, the night after WrestleMania where Shawn Michaels dropped the championship to Stone Cold Steve Austin. Triple yeah, H that's when, you know. Reformed DX. When, and, of course, the famous line, when you start an army, you look to your blood, you look to your buddies, you look to the click. And, of course, out comes Shawn Waltman cutting a very interesting promo. Yeah, he comes out and he's like, I heard Hulk Hogan come out on television saying I couldn't cut the mustard. Well, Hulk Hogan, you suck, pal crowd going nuts at this point yep. so i don't think you have any room telling anybody to cut any mustard and hulk i have some more advice for you you better not stop short or else eric bischoff will go so far up your ass he'll know what you had for breakfast and then he says kevin nash and scott would be standing right here with us if they weren't being held hostage by eric bischoff so mm. put that in your pipe and smoke it the crowd ate it up and this was right smack dab in the middle of the Monday Night War with WCW. So this was a huge deal to break the fourth wall, mention big names in WCW, especially Bischoff, talk about him being fired, how Hogan was kind of running things, and Bischoff was up his ass. And it was a, it was a fantastic, awesome shoot promo. WWE likely you know, let him say whatever he wanted to say as long as he come, you know, kind of built up some of the storyline stuff which he did you know to go forward on right but this is exactly what was needed you know for for them to get a bit of the edge because you know he was the hip outlaw face of the nwo as it said here you know and, and that's true and for him to go ahead and you know obviously hall and hogan were always bigger and more over but x-pac gave them that youthful attitude it says and that's, that's that's the truth. You know, he did add a bit of edge to, you know, whatever he was a part of. So when he got this Elvis-like response, you know, it was like the, the, the Beatles <laughs> landing when Triple H called him out. It was next level. It was something you hadn't seen in either quite some time. Now Sean's gone. DX needs new members. And look at that. We're, you know, we're filing out the ranks. We get, you know, the, 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 the latest iteration of D-Generation Next. We got the Outlaws in there. And things start to culminate and play out well. 
Now, it's Immediately, he, he, he's, he's over the first night he's there. Yet again, rocket strapped to his ass. It, it's an all-too-familiar territory. Now, it's interesting because I think at this point in time, they're just starting to get the momentum back because, again, Austin just won the belt. And I feel like, when would you say, we were talking a little about this earlier, when would you say the Attitude Era started? I, I always attribute, yeah, that's that's kind of like the, the night that things really, I mean, a little bit before then, obviously, with Austin, and I always, I, I like to go, and, and sometimes I say, you know, oh, I, I look at the double turn as being like a pivotal moment between Brett and Austin. I think that was like the precipice to set up the change for everything else, and then uh, not long after when McMahon gave that, you know, opening to Raw, that's when it really so into gear. I looked into it just real quick. I hit it up on my Google machine, and uh, December fifteenth, nineteen ninety seven, is when that promo took place. And so that was about three months before Sean Waltman showed up back in WWF. Yeah. So you, so you know, right at that time, here we have it. it it's you know, <laughs> it's it's perfect timing yet again. You know, lightning in a bottle. Now, again, you know, I'm going to keep repeating this and beating a fucking dead horse. When you look back at X-Pac's run in DX, there are a couple of memorable moments. And, you know, again, he won the tag team titles twice, even winning the European Championship, which we'll get into. But it it's the same issue of, like, you know, not like memorable matches, but definitely memorable moments. And I can't wait to talk about the X Factor. Fucking cannot wait to talk about that. <laughs> But um, he instantly starts off a feud with Jeff Jarrett. He ultimately defeats him in a hair versus hair match at SummerSlam. And then, of course, um, going off against D. Lil Brown for the European Championship in 1998. Then uh, re-lost the title to him a couple weeks later. Then won it back later at Judgment Day in October. So kind of a little bounce around there. Then he loses the championship to Shane, Shane McMahon. Yeah, that's right. Back in uh, later on in February, and then at WrestleMania 15, he lost it in a rematch when Triple H betrayed Sean Waltman and hit him with a pedigree finisher, which I didn't even see fucking coming. Yeah, no, it was it was so upsetting to to basically see DX, uh, you know, fall out at that point in time, and this is when Triple H was really becoming the game. And starting to do whatever was necessary for him to evolve and, and, you know, better himself. Right, because at this point they split DX now. And I think Road Dog went with X-Pac. And they were feuding against Billy Gunn, China, and Triple H. Because X-Pac and Road Dog wanted DX to be all about, like, rebellion and craziness. Meanwhile, the others wanted to be all about making money. And so, <laughs> I have to admit... Remembering that these two were a team was one of the fucking weirdest teams I could recently remember. So Xbox turns face and turns face and befriends Kane. Now, and of all people, it was such an odd pairing. <laughs> what the? It fuck? really was. But you know what? Funny that we're doing this today because eight hours ago, an, an article came out on Kane speaking about Xbox. So. Call, you know, say what you may, a bit of a, <laughs> again, perfect timing here. But Kane was speaking today. Wait, is X-Pac moving to Knox County? <laughs> if only, help him with his mayoral career. Um, yeah, Kane here says how teaming with X-Pac helped his WWE career. 
He said that it was great. It helped me out tremendously because up until that point, Kane had just been an emotionless monster. And what teaming with X-Pac did for me, our tag team, was it really helped round out my character. It showed that I had feelings and all that stuff, which I never had before. It humanized me enough that people could relate much better and people started to care about Kane at this point, you know. That's true. He said not, not only did it really help my character, but in my career, all the stuff we got to do, man, it was a blast. And like you said, a lot of times when you have tag teams that are bookends, having something that contrasted so much, and that was what was so unique, we were able to have great matches with anybody. And that's something that I can't say enough. I mean, we even saw Keen end up having, you know... <laughs> <laughs> everything that happened when Tori added to it and yeah I thought you were talking about with him speaking through the freaking the voice box oh yeah you know and suck it and fantastic stuff that we got here but they won so the we fucking got belts some, twice yes and to, to, to really you know go ahead and see who they want it from and you know you figure you know Kane was no longer a mute he was no longer an angry loner he wasn't you know uh, he was encouraged to speak he was using that, uh, you know, the electrolarynx box and, you know, suck it and all that kind of stuff. It was it was great. And for them working together, you know, like I said, they they had these great matches against the Acolytes, you know, who would then become the APA. They had matches against Big Show and Undertaker. And for someone of his size to see <laughs> X-Pac in the ring battling it out with the Undertaker yeah. and then tagging in to battle it out with Big Show... And being competent and getting in great moves and great offense. He wasn't treated like how they treat cruiserweights today when you see someone, you know, like Brock Lesnar would decimate him in, in 0.2 seconds. Hell, he decimates the big show in Braun anyway, so I guess it doesn't really matter. But, you know, they, they focus on size in such a different light nowadays. And I said, this is one of the things I miss because Sean can have great, great matches, top-level matches, with people that were double his size, and he made it believable. He made it seem plausible. It wasn't always David versus Goliath in the sense that, you know, he was able to to overcome the odds, and you had no choice but to root for him. And it was fun enough, to had watch. Skill that he could back it up, and or at least exactly. hang on for. Yeah, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, um, oh god, it wasn't like Enzo and Cass. And, and honestly, looking back at Enzo and Cass's like tag team matches, fucking brutal because Enzo didn't get any offense in. You know, no, not and at all. Th that's the like the complete. This is like the complete antithesis because X Pac, even though he was obviously, and I just was flashing back to those those tag team matches. Even though he obviously was the smallest out of the four of them, he could fucking go. Not that we never thought he wouldn't, but when you throw him in the, in the land of giants where everyone around him is a fucking big guy, um, it's very intriguing. And not only that. It, you know, I'm a big, also a big proponent of mixing styles. So when you have someone like Big Show and X Pac going at it, you're going to get some really interesting stuff. Absolutely. And unfortunately, you know, not all things last. Um, you know, they they do eventually go ahead, and you know, <laughs> Kane. You know, was X Pac led Kane to believe that he would be inducted into DX. Instead, he betrayed Kane. And stole his girlfriend Tori. So and I mean, if we do Kane, his love life is going to be one of the most intriguing things to dive into. <laughs> I'm just, I'm telling you right now, because hey, fuck, a lot of babies punted. You know, Snitsky. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so now we're oh, in god. 2000, and this is when the 
<laughs> the fabled term X-Pac Heat was coined. And the issue was is that, you know, X-Pac Heat was named after him when a crowd is really disinterested in the match. A lot of people said it's hard to know where the origins of X-Pac Heat came from, but it's a term that isn't very favorable. It was created because there was a point in his career after DX had broken up as soon as, you know, he wasn't really getting the kind of good reactions from the fans that the wrestlers would want. He was out there as a heel at this point, and he was getting booed because the fans were basically saying, we're sick of this guy, and it kept happening to him. And it wasn't typical heel heat. People started calling it X-Pac heat. You know, it wasn't just them booing him because, oh, you're the bad guy. They were booing him because, oh, we don't want to see you anymore. You know, here you had this great face role with him and Kane working wonderfully. And for whatever horrible decision-making reason they had, they had him betray Kane, steal his girlfriend, and, and, you know, it's like, why? You turn him heel for what? So the fans didn't get, you know, to do anything but just no longer enjoy him at all. And it, it, this followed him. And one of the issues also at this time was X-Pac was busy feuding with, you know, Road Dog. He took on Road Dog, which is a really good match. That That is one of the top matches when I was asking people. Him and Road Dog had a match at SummerSlam 2000 that a lot of people did enjoy. Uh, I just went ahead and I watched that earlier, and, you know, it, it doesn't hold up as well as I had remembered it, but it was still fun. X-Pac wins. He goes ahead and says, you know, hey, this is over with now. Can we can we just go back to being friends? And Road Dog lays him out, and the crowd cheers. The crowd goes ahead and goes nuts, and you figure, here's X-Pac basically saying, like, oh, let's let bygones be bygones. <laughs> and, the you know, even though he was the heel at the time, he was the one that said, Hey, let's just, you know, don't worry about it. Now we know I'm the best in DX. Let's let this go. Road Dog attacks him like a heel would and gets cheered for it. So people just were done with X-Pac at this time. And he goes on. He, he takes on Chris Jericho shortly thereafter. Uh, they have a bit of a feud. Jericho botches a powerbomb at one point, and this re-injures Sean's neck. So now X-Pac is out for three months with another neck injury. And unfortunately, I mean, you know, this just this this brings on more of that X-Pac heat because he would go ahead and he would, you know, he would come back still injured, try and wrestle for a little bit, wasn't able to keep himself together in the ring, wasn't able to do as much because now he's on painkillers as well for the right. injury. So he starts off on painkillers for a legitimate reason, which turns into an addiction again. So that's, you know, a big hindrance to him. So that that's a negative aspect and in, in something that's hurting his career. Plus, the injury isn't allowing him to perform as he would usually, you know, that the standards that he would usually apply to. So all in all, it's just all these factors working against him. And thus you have, you know, <laughs> X-Pac heat. So. Well, I guess maybe that's why. Now that was in our. You said what? <clears throat> that was uh, when in when in, in two thousand. Yeah, that was after SummerSlam. So okay, um, maybe that's probably why they. Made now, it. now he's out for three months, and he he doesn't he returns in early two thousand one. Oh yeah, this is my where favorite, the, uh... my favorite stable <laughs> of all time. Yo, you did it with the X Factor. <laughs> I got everything that I ever wanted. That Uncle Cracker <laughs> shit was amazing. I fucking <laughs> like, but, but but um, it's funny. It's funny what shit you remember, 
And I yeah. vividly remember X Factor. It's so funny. I do as well. Like you said, the, the music just stuck out. And <laughs> X Factor. You know, God it's just, damn it. It's so good. Um, but uh, so, Yeah, he, he ends up creating a new stable with Justin Credible and Albert. And now on paper, that's not a bad group. It's no, not at all. Fuck, but it's not a bad because you have X, you have just incredible. You have X Pac as like the team, and then you have Albert as your heater. That's not yeah. bad. No, not at all. Not not for what they were trying to, you know, go ahead and accomplish either. And I, I yeah, I know we skipped a few notable matches as well. You know, we had a really good dumpster match at King of the Ring two thousand. And, you know, a few of the matches with Jericho were really good. But, you know, towards the end where the injury occurred, right. uh, he just wasn't up to snuff for what we would usually consider great work. So now he starts to get into a bit of a better groove here. And he's still doing some single matches, though typically teaming with Justin Credible. Yep. And he ends up winning the WWF Light Heavyweight Championship from Jeff Hardy on June 25th. This is 2001 still. Then he wins the WCW Cruiserweight Championship for the second time in his career when he defeats Billy Kidman on July 30th. Now, here's the weird part about this, and not to cut you off, Jake. So this is during, now we're in the midst of the uh, the invasion angle. So the invasion yeah, angle. So the attitude in, era is over in my right. eyes at this yep. point. And so it's a weird thing because I remember that, like, and this is the one thing I didn't really like about the invasion angle was because you'd figure that there'd be clear-cut baby faces and there'd be clear-cut heels. Right, the invade the alliance's heels, and then there. But they would sometimes dabble some of the lower card guys as being like heels, but still on Team WWF. I mean, the only really one that I thought was a really good example of it breaking the norm was Van Dam, because Van Dam was like the biggest baby face on the alliance. But I remember like, I don't know, it was it was weird because, um, I remember watching. I went back and watched SummerSlam one recently, and I remember he was facing. I think it was. Trying to remember, it was either Tajiri or no, it was Tajiri. It was Tajiri, um, and then uh, the crowd was just booing the shit out of him. And I don't know if that was X Pac Heat, but like, it was weird. It was just a weird crowd reaction. Match was pretty damn good, but the, the reaction yeah, was just very just, odd. People just booed him, and they acted like you know he didn't exist at this point in time or that, you know, everybody hated him constantly, which wasn't the case, you know, that, that, that wasn't how it always was, but it was just unfortunate that that's what followed him. You know, he, he, he started to slide down the card again and his reaction caused management to kind of, you know, go ahead and not use him either. So here we have this stable and we think that it's going to be, you know, a really big, you know, positive thing for him. And then, you know, so it starts off, you got a lack of creative direction post DX, you know, that's a really big thing. So obviously Triple H, you know, suffered from this the least, but if, if, you know, the new age outlaws didn't have each other. So if road dog didn't have Billy or Billy, you know, they, they wouldn't have worked, but luckily they paired so well together that they carried each other. Triple H got elevated by China, then by Stephanie, and Sean was on his own. So once everybody went their own way, it, it you know it just didn't work. And he had that silly pairing with K Quick. That was holy shit, really really silly for you know a point in time. I and then you know that. he never really got you know Sean didn't get to to, to develop uh, any bit more of a new character. He was still, like, touting the DX ways. This is things we get on Roman's case for. You know, Seth's got a new song. Dean's got a new theme. 
and there's Roman still coming through the crowd with the with the shield gear on. Well, that that was X Pac, you know, that epitomizes X Pac perfectly. Here it's three years since you know DX broke up per se, and he's still coming out to the DX theme. You know, up until the X Factor formed, obviously, and then he would come out to that theme. But you know, he was still using the DX theme song. He still had the black and green gear. Like everything was just him hanging on to a moment of greatness that he was trying to capture again. It felt like, so the fans saw this and felt like he was a, a one-trick pony. Then the drug use gotten in, you know. I, this is Sean's own reasoning for his decline. So I hold it in high regard. You know, he said, obviously becoming a meth head isn't going to help your career regardless what it is. My heavy usage definitely deteriorated my ability to perform in every facet of the wrestling business and to be a good employee. Every click member had quite the ego and that obviously rubbed off on me. And I imagine me being drugged up was not the easiest person to deal with both behind and in front of the camera. China obviously saw her career slip in 2001 for the same reason. And, you know, obviously Stephanie would be a, a more contributing factor to that, but obviously drugs would be a number two. Yeah. And then also another thing that hindered him at this time. So now he's doesn't have a, a, a his gimmick didn't age well. You know, the drug use is, is really wearing him thin. And now you have the radicals, Kurt Angle, the influx of all the future Hall of Famers, you know, Austin and Rock are still on top, but you have these new guys coming in from the invasion angle around this time in 2001. Chris Jericho's on top of his game. So you have this talent that is next level, going to carry the company for the next 10 years, per se. And there's X-Pac with the same gimmick in the drug problem. So, And then, on top of that, and I know I'm probably a little jumping ahead of it here, so what do they do to revitalize him when he comes back? They fucking throw him back into the NWO. Yeah. Come on. I mean, and again, it's like, oh, harking and, and, back to a, a gimmick that worked previously, but it just doesn't feel, well, you know, the, well, the worst anything part, but a nostalgia trip. Well, that's the worst part is that I feel like, and, and this is no this is no disrespect to him, this is no disrespect to his ability, but it was... And this this goes for me in life, like work and all that stuff. And and this is just my general philosophy is that, especially from like a management perspective, when I when I used to be a manager, my philosophy was I can't expect success from someone if I'm not setting them up for success. You know what I mean? And the the, the problem that I had with X Pac being in the NWO is how on God's green earth do you expect this team to stay relevant and stay over after you've just plucked the biggest star out of the group? Exactly. Because at this point in time, when X-Pac is coming back, he's back in the new in the new world order, right? This is literally, I believe it was like the SmackDown after WrestleMania 18. So Hogan had left NWO. He had turned babyface after that. Yeah, this is they, March 21st. So. Yep. So yeah, right. really quick before that, we'll just we'll run through it to catch up. Yeah, like you said, you mentioned the match with Tajiri. Yep. He wins the light heavyweight championship for the second time. Right. Everything's going on with the invasion angle. So Billy Kidman is, is and you know, working with him at this point, you know, and, and this was acknowledged, you know, by Edge as well that, hey, you know, you essentially were a WCW guy for a while. So the, the fans were very vocal about, you know, their dis, disapproval of Waltman during his, hey, I'm part of the WWF good guys with with WWF at this time when they were facing against the evil WCW. So 
X Factor is still a thing, but then Just Incredible joins the ECW WCW Alliance. Now they break up. Uh, you know, he wins the light heavyweight championship from Tajiri the second time. And this is while he's still holding the cruiserweight championship at the same time. He feuds with Kidman and Tajiri. He loses the title to Kidman, the, the cruiserweight title to Kidman. Now he takes time off for another injury, another injury. And I believe also goes back to rehab at this point in time. So now they abandon the light heavyweight championship. And he defended it at house shows when he was able to return prior but they abandon it on TV, and it's not seen or heard from again. You know, that's put off into obscurity. So now, like you said, Hall, Nash, Hogan, they returned to WWF in 2002 as a New World Order. They brought in by Vince. Hogan was kicked from the group after losing to the Rocket Mania. And then X-Pac returns SmackDown after Mania, March 21st, rejoins the NWO and attacks Hogan. So now he's heel again <laughs> after being face. And he said he'd been waiting four years to attack Hogan because Hogan shot on WCW uh, Thunder after yes. Waltman's firing, saying he could not cut the mustard. So that's why he made that epic promo when he came into the WWF, right? saying, you know, you said I couldn't cut the mustard. Well, you suck and all this. <sighs> Unfortunately, the draft happens, the first ever WWE draft, and the storyline gets dropped entirely. Because the NWO went to Raw and Hogan went to SmackDown. So we never got any resolution for this. Yeah, and, and honestly, I remember very vividly that... It just... just so How disappointing. Yeah. It really was. And, and here's the thing. And, and again, this is something that we talked about with Ziggler in the last one. And, and I'm sure it will be a common theme of this show. Is the way that just like... Again, the idea of setting up for success. What would you expect to happen? Now, granted, I know that they tried to start something in NWO because I know that they did, um, I know they did, ironically, an angle with Kane, but they did a really brief thing with that because they took him out because Kane was injured. And then they went into some random feuds. Now, granted, uh, this is 2002, and Bruce Pritchard, who was part of the creative team at this point, said like everything was just a fucking mess at that time creatively. So I got to give him at least props for admitting, hey, it was a fucking nightmare in terms of um, in terms of creative. And but how like, could it not be with having that many talented individuals and big names at that point in time? You know, Hogan had creative control to, in some regards, I guess, still. And now you have you know people still at this point in time. It was that, a, are, that are, you know, the mainstays. And so you have WCW talent demanding to be the top people. You have the people that were WWF, now WWE talent, demanding to still be the top people. You know, there, there was no way to please everybody, and therefore everybody was miserable. Um, but um, the, it, 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 not only that, like, especially in the first six months of, like, the, the very first brand split, people were either injured or leaving. Like, it was just a mess of just people all doing this. And um, it, it was just absolutely chaotic. Because I remember they did, like, JBL, and they feuded with, um, they feuded with, like, Big Show ended up getting into part of the group. Then they did Booker T and Goldust. But then, of course, unfortunately, um, he ended up with a, a mini injury through that because there was a botched Spinebuster injury that kept him out from participating in that rivalry. And then, unfortunately, the last time we see... Sean Waltman, X-Pac, compete in a wrestling match in the WWF uh, was on July 8th, 2002. That was an episode of Raw, which is ironically also the last time we saw Nash because that was the infamous eight-man tag, or excuse me, ten-man tag, where Nash tore his 
quad live on TV. <laughs> Dude, that fucking oh my god, that so was so brutal. Oh my lord! Like as much as the, as we, I laugh about, now because it's so infamous with the joke and the meme of him. Yeah, and right. Quad, but, I mean, but fuck, you go back and watch it. I mean, you see a guy like that who I'm sure Nash can take a massive amount of pain, just drop and scream. Fuck that noise! Yeah. Um, oh. And now god. Vince disbands the group a week later. Anyway, so and then SummerSlam, poof, he's gone. Yeah, and you have Jim Ross announced WWE and Waltman had parted ways. So. Yeah. Yet again, you know, comes in and they're going to form this new group. He's he's feuding with Jericho like things are, you know, when he comes back from injury and him and Jericho have this great first blood match. Oh, he gets injured again. All right. Well, now he comes in. You got X Factor. And oh, look at that. You know, things are starting to go well. Oh, the invasion angle happens. He's injured. Oh, we're going to put him back with the NWO. Oh, look at that. He's gone. You know, and it's like, damn, now. And in this time, I know you got him not just, you know, with Sable <laughs> pooping in her bag, but you have him backstage causing these, uh, you know, issues and antics. And obviously him and Brock Lesnar didn't see eye to eye with the way that he treated Sable. And, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of issues. He, he ruffled many, many feathers backstage. Obviously, as he said, you know, he did things to former uh, Diva Sonny and, and, you know... <laughs> it was just, you know, there there was a lot of uh, uh, issues backstage with him, and he was very difficult to deal with. So, right now, here's the, where things are going to get interesting because obviously there's another two runs in TNA that we're going to talk about, um, and I know there is a bunch of other things that we're going to kind of jump. I, I guess we should probably just jump over. Um, when we get to it, the independent circuit stuff, because there's just a bunch of just random stuff. But he does make his jump over to TNA um, in September. Um, he debuts in September for losing a gauntlet match, um, rejoining uh, Scott Hall and, of course, uh, Road Dog, feuding with Jeff Jarrett and Brian Lawler, of course, Grandmaster Sexay, the son of Jerry the King Lawler. But on October 9th, he makes his X Division debut, winning the fucking X Division Championship, which I guess if you're really going to look at it from um, from like a championship's perspective as far as accolades, it's probably the highest accolade he's gotten, if I'm not mistaken. Like, Yeah, yeah that certainly was, was the creme de la creme for, for yeah. Sean Waltman. Um, he then goes on to held the title belts for almost two for only two weeks before losing it to AJ Styles in a pretty interesting no DQ match. I went back and watched that one. It was actually pretty interesting. I forgot he was. Yeah, I only saw this when preparing for this, you know, segment. And uh, yeah, it was a good match, but yep, it was sad that he only held it for two weeks. I didn't realize it was that short. Yeah, it was only that little time. He abruptly then left again after um, defeating Lawler in the first round of a championship number one contenders tournament. Uh, but then he did return back as Six Pac uh, for one night on June 18th, 2003, uh, 2003 as part of their one-year anniversary uh, as AJ Styles' mystery partner against a team of Jeff Jarrett and Sting. That was another weird time. So remember, uh, TNA at this point is in its very infancy, and it was established in June. So now we're obviously at the one-year milestone. So it's it's, you know... There's going to be a lot of revolving doors when it comes to TNA within the first tier, obviously. Uh, but we don't really see uh, Sean, Xbox, Xbox, whatever you want to call him at this point, you know, 
much more until he comes back two more years later uh, when they yeah. start doing actual pay-per-views. At this point, TNA was just doing weekly pay-per-views. Now they're doing monthly. Um, he comes back attacking Jeff Jarrett uh, during his uh, ch- title match against Kevin Nash for the NWA title. Nash, Waltman, and DDP form an alliance feuded with um, <laughs> Planet Jarrett. Yeah, Planet Jarrett, yeah. Fucking A. Uh, with, Jarrett, the outlaw, and Monty Brown, Brown working and, together. Yeah, but Lockdown, Waltman, BG James, and DDP defeat Planet Jarrett in a lethal lockdown match. By the way, I'm actually a big uh, fan of the lethal lockdown match. I wish they would bring that back. Um, yeah, that is a very unique, you know, yeah, stipulation. I would, well, it's like it's like war games ish, but with weapons. Because fuck it, why not? Um, why not? Yeah. Yep. But um, Nash and Page then go on uh, to leave, but Xbox sticks around for a little bit longer. Hard Justice, which is, I believe, in August. Waltman replaced Jeff Hardy, who, of course, no-showed and lost to Raven during a <laughs> clockwork orange House of Fun match after being back body dropped <laughs> through the steel cage. Um can't make this shit up, folks. On June 19th, Slammiversary, Waltman wrestled a five-man King of the Mountain match. Again, another one of my favorite matches from TNA. Um, he ended up losing, but he cost AJ Styles the title by delivering an X-Factor off the ladder. Go watch that shit. Go watch that just that spot right there where you just uh, fucking nuts. Of course, this turns him heel, leads him to a grudge match, no surrender, which Styles won after, of course... Jerry Lynn's the guest referee. Funny how things come full circle. Remember we said that him and uh, Jerry Lynn were tag team partners earlier on in his career. Waltman then challenged Lynn to a match at Sacrifice. After losing, Waltman attacked Lynn and tried to re-injure uh, Waltman, uh, Lynn's shoulder. Waltman then partnered with Alex Shelley to win the Chris Candido Cup. This earned him a shot at the NWA Tag Titles on Unbreakable. Waltman, of course, no-showed the event and wasn't seen again until his one-night return at Final Resolution when he was brought in by Larry Zabisco to beat his uh, rival Raven. I actually remember that. That was a fun little uh, fun rivalry between Zabisco and uh, Raven. So uh, kind of scattered brain a little bit here because he didn't really have a whole lot of consistency in TNA um, except for basically like the 2005 run. Um... Some of these were really fun, but I, I like the fact that especially with the early stages of TNA, especially with the inception of the X Division, that you could you could easily plug in X Division guys with the main heavyweights, and there it wasn't a big um, what's the way I said fairly there wasn't a big gap like it was in WCW where if you were plugging, no they would deliver consistently or or they were perceived. That they could go for this, like yeah. we, were, we were talking. about... They were about, almost viewed as equals, not quite, but close enough. Correct. Um, you know, as opposed to WCW, we saw him plucked from the NWO, or excuse me, plucked from the cruiserweights when he was in the NWO, and then all of a sudden, with these guys, he felt like filler. Whereas this one, like the matches with Styles, which some of them were really good, the Jerry Lynn match, you know, involving himself like the lethal lockdown, he seemed more like an equal level player as opposed to just the third wheel, like we've been talking about. Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't you know an afterthought with any of this. So, um, unfortunately, from there uh, we see him go to MTV's newly formed uh, promotion called Wrestling Society X. Oh my God, I remember that yeah. one. This so was I remember you know MTV had you know quite a a bit different programming at that time. Jackass was still pretty prevalent and a big deal, and they you know were trying to capture as much of that demographic as they could. So. They added like you know these crazy matches and stipulations where there was like pyro involved, or people would get electrocuted and fall into pools that were filled with live wires, and you could blow people up. Like it was it was supposed to be this you know real 
uh, you know, stunt-tacular type wrestling, but it just looked silly the entire time, and, and it was, uh, you it was know. way too Hollywood. I think that's the best way. I can yeah, that was, it was, it was, it was um, you know. It's like if Paramount did a wrestling promotion. Uh, no shit. Like if Paramount Pictures did a wrestling promotion, I feel like that's what it would be like. Um, I do remember like they that he was like supposed to be like the W. Uh, he was supposed to win the WX championship, but like he lost it um, or something like that. Yeah, him and him and Vampiro, they both yeah, climbed right. the ladder to receive contracts, but he ended up losing the title match to Vampiro the following week. And in episode four, he challenged Vampiro, and it was just a ruse to introduce, you know, Ricky Banderas. And it just kind of went on from there. Nothing really of note, you know. And then WSX folded before yeah. anything that, could go on any further. So wasn't that long. Now, at this point, like I said before, uh, this is like the independent part. So there was a big gap, I guess, between basically 2006 all the way through to 2010 when he goes back uh, to TNA. And there's a couple of little moments here. I, I was trying to read through these. There really wasn't anything too huge. He's he's teamed with other former members in the past, like Road Dogg and Billy Gunn. He wrestled a bunch of different matches, and he's had a couple of interesting, um, uh, you know, interesting different career highlights. I guess you could call them, multiple championships. Um, he was he wrestled at House of Hardcore recently, as far as 2013. Um, he was, of course, inducted into the Legends Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in Wheeling, West, West Virginia in 2011. So just kind of a scatterbrain kind of, um, you know, independent sightings here and there. I know he's up here at one point in time. But, yeah, the only thing that, that kind of stood out for me, unfortunately, was when he tore his own anus oh uh, and, and had that. to get the emergency uh, sphincterplasty done. Because he did the Bronco Buster, you know, he he ripped himself in a very sensitive spot. It was at the Jerry Lynn Retirement Show in Minneapolis, and this was back in March 28th, I believe, of 2013. Yep. Yeah, uh, he went for his signature Bronco Buster on Horace the Psychopath. Horace moved out of the way as planned, but instead of landing on the padding, he hit himself on the open metal on the turnbuckle. And oh, just really tore himself up. They said the video doesn't do justice to the severity of the situation. Well, he said I don't think he felt anything. Not at first. He said the turnbuckle wasn't covered and my landing should have been uh, oh, 45 degrees. Christ. He Ugh. said I went to the after party briefly but had to leave because so much blood started gushing. The hotel looked like a murder scene. There was so much blood. He said uh, hotel security called an ambulance and Dr. Morkin performed the sphincterplasty to save me from having to have a colostomy bag for the rest of my life. It's hard not to laugh, so feel free to find it humorous. I almost did bleed out before the ambulance got there, though. I did the X Factor from the top rope and went through a table after it happened. My concern was Jerry getting the proper send off, not my butthole. <laughs> so even injured, you know, like we had said before, he gives it his all. This man tore his asshole in half from if, the inside out. If there's any quote that you take away from from this show tonight, it's gonna be that one. It's gotta it be that to one. Be. Jesus. Um <laughs> what a pain in the ass. Anyway, um <laughs> so he goes back so amidst all this, he does make a return back to TNA during of course the infamous three-hour Monday night episode of Impact that they went head-to-head -head with um, WWE on January. Actually, no, I don't think they went head-to-head -head that night. I think they were I think they were uncontested, but it was the first time they wanted to go live. 
uh, on Monday nights. And of course, they returned with Scott Hall. And I think they call themselves The Band because they wanted to get The Band back together. <laughs> back together, yeah. The night follow, uh, fellow member Hulk Hogan debuted in TNA that same night. Nash, Hall, and Waltman also quickly reformed the alliance. But Hogan stayed away saying that times had changed. So um, again, back to the same old stuff. Um, yeah, here, here soon enough, you know, they have their own, you know, Nash and Hall are having a five-minute $25,000 challenge. Waltman attacks Nash and handcuffs him to the rope. So yet again, he's the afterthought. He's the after party. He's just the, you know, the, the filler. He's the one, the enhancement talent. He's only there to, you know, mess up the match or, or you know, cause the dusty finish. Right, and, I, and looking into this, like, and I know we have this like, huge list of everything that he did in TNA, but realistically, to kind of sum it up, he was more or less like the backup to Hall. Now, Nash at this point hadn't really joined really fully at this point, but because um, I guess Nash was teaming with Eric Young, and I can't remember the reason why, but um, Nash and Young then brought out a contract to wrestle Weltman and Hall on pay-per-view. Basically, they were trying to do this thing where... Uh, it was their con like the if they lost they would have lost their jobs. Uh, Nash then turned on them, of course, putting the band back together, and then they did like a six man rivalry with Jeff Hardy and RVD, and then it wasn't too long until they he got written off of um, written off of TB. But I guess uh, again, really wasn't anything huge notable, which sucks because again you compare his first run in TNA, which was eight years prior, winning the X Division Championship on one of his start time, having some really good matches with like Raven, with Jerry Lynn and AJ Styles, and then he comes back and he's almost just unfortunately once again the backup person, like the backup vote, the third wheel in the, the band, and of course it doesn't take long. In June he's released um, along with Scott Hall actually, but I, don't know, I just feel like his his second TNA run wasn't anything of any substance unfortunately no again just enhancement talent and, and i mean around that time as well you know that that was 2010 into 2011 2011 we saw him return to television to celebrate uh sean michael's induction into the hall of fame he then worked for fcw florida championship wrestling he was you know helping find talent and evaluate them for the developmental territory uh he attended the hall of fame again with the click in 2012 right and then you know they had the dx reunion on the thousandth episode of raw at that time 2013 the click and dx reunited for nxt um he then signed a legends contract in early march 2013 when this is a long-term contract but gives merchandising rights to him and now he's been doing appearances for you know, sporadically, uh, he was there the night before WrestleMania 30. He joined, you know, Triple H and HBK, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall uh, for Scott Hall's fame, uh, Hall of Fame induction, reuniting the Click, and then he was there for uh, the Raw 25 reuniting as well, and a few other like minor segments involving like Damien Mizdow and stuff, but. Yeah. That's he was also at War Games in the crowd, you know, 2018, right, if you yeah, want to mention that with his dog. <laughs> but since then, you know, he's only had, since 2011 onward, he has only had some minor appearances. Right. And he's done quite a few independent matches, mostly teaming up with uh, Road Dog and or Billy Gunn in some way, shape, or form. So again, hearkening back and holding on to that former glory, you know, of, of being part of a, 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 you know, squad, click, faction. <laughs> 
Now, I mean, that pretty much more or less sums up um, Xbox career. Now, I know you've got um, your notes of, like, memorable moments and matches that people should check out. I guess the question I want to ask before we get into that, Hall of Fame worthy? I certainly feel so. I mean, he, he contributed so much to this, this business. I mean, no, he didn't have the, the longest career. He didn't have the most memorable feuds, but he certainly helped develop talent. He, he, you know, showed what it was to be a true workhorse of the industry. And he gave his everything in that ring, whether there was, you know, an audience of five or 5,000, you know, 50,000, you know, whatever it was. He always consistently delivered, even when he tears his ass, you know, he makes sure that people go home happy. Um, no matter where he was on the card, he tried, he gave it his, you know, gave it his all and worked his hardest. When he was on the top feuding with, you know, Undertaker and Big Show, he, he treated it like a main event. And when he was on the way bottom, you know, just doing a comedy act, he still viewed it as his main event. So um, you can't knock him for that much. I mean, he he's essentially had, you know, somewhere near 28 years of, of quality matches in him. And even with the X-Pac heat being a negative aspect of him, he still put on very good matches even in that time period. He didn't change his look and style much. Uh, he always seemed to be the same old, you know, Sean Waltman. Even when he returned in different forms, you know, it was still him. But that nostalgic, uh, uh, you know, dose was, was pretty much just what the doctor ordered for a lot of fans. So he brought joy to millions, and you can't ask for more than that. No, and I think that, you know, despite despite the, I think, common conception that, you know, if you look at the click. Triple H, Sean, Nash, Razor, Pox, you know, and I, I hate saying this because I don't want to disrespect him, but, he, you know, he's considered to be a lot like we've mentioned numerous times, third wheel, behind guy, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, when researching this, as I mentioned numerous times, he, as you've said before, great in-ring work. You can't take that away from him. So I just want to at least throw it out there. Maybe you guys can let us know if your thoughts on um, – do you think he would be Hall of Fame worthy? I certainly think so. I think it's just a matter of time. You know, I think the click, there's a reason why the click got so over in the first place. But we're going to wrap Absolutely. this up with Jake giving us a list of, give us your thoughts on memorable moments, matches, what you uh, would recommend to everybody listening if you guys want to check out more about X-Pac. Um, I would definitely would suggest starting off with, you know, the one two three kid becoming the one two three kid scoring that huge upset victory over Razor Ramon on Monday Night Raw. From there, you would, I would uh, also suggest you check out him and Marty Jannetty teaming up to beat the Quebecers and winning their first tag team gold. Uh, that was, you know, a, quite a moment, very special, really good match. Um, he also took on Brett the Hitman Hart, you know, and, and that was probably the, the best match of his career, a lot of people say, when he took on Brett for the WWE Championship on Monday Night Raw. So that, that was in yeah, July yeah. of that same year. That's definitely one you don't want to miss. Um, you know, there's matches with Razor Ramon, Diesel, Shawn Michaels. But uh, another one that stands out, obviously, is, uh, you know, you see when he was the special guest referee in the Razor versus Sid match when he turned heel. Some people do like to go back to that one, mm. which led to his run with, you know, the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. I always enjoy the latter match with him and Eddie Guerrero. Though he didn't win uh, that match, it was an excellent match. Um, you know, that was when he was going for Eddie Guerrero's title. So, you know, that, that's certainly a standout as well. Um, 
Kane and X-Pac, a lot of their matches were, were extremely entertaining, but one that stands out to me was him and uh, Kane taking on Owen Hart and Jeff Hart for the tag team titles. So that was certainly a great match. Um, you can go ahead and look that up. That's on YouTube and the network. Uh, that was when they they were calling him the big red retard and stuff, and, and X-Pac got offended. So <laughs> We also have uh, the breakup angle of this. You, at WWF Armageddon in 1999, Kane taking on X-Pac. That was another great match. Um, we have Eddie Guerrero, as we had said before, that, that was again voted in, so that snuck in here twice. But uh, you can also say Road Dog taking on X Pac at SummerSlam 2000. That was another great match. So, Bitchin'. definitely things that you want to go ahead and check out. You know, we 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 went through and listed off some of the main moments, but those are the matches I would recommend checking out. There was also a few, you know, here and there where he would take on, you know, one member of the Acolytes. He took on JBL at one point. That was a fantastic match. Just to I see the size difference. Fuck out of him! I remember that one. Yeah, it turned God. him inside out. Absolutely inside out. I remember that. Um, but the size difference, you know, didn't feel like an issue at all times. Like you said, he had so much, uh, you know, cunning and, and, and knowledge and ring ability that he was able to overcome his opponents easily at times. Right. Man, that's a great list to go off of. Um, yeah, no questions about that one. So, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff when we go ahead and uncover this stuff. But, of course, let us know what you guys think and let us know your thoughts, what you guys uh, remember about Xbox Run, uh, the best, the worst, everything in between. Did you like one versus the other? Which run was your favorite? Love to hear your thoughts down in the comments or on social media. You can hit me up at OKFab. You can hit this up guy, this awesome man, Mr. Jake DeMarco, at Countdown Ended. And, of course, let us know your suggestions, your feedback on who you guys want us to cover in the next episode. We've already done Ziggler for two hours. We had an Xbox for an hour and a half. God knows who the third one is, uh, and that should be a whole lot of fun, though. We've had a lot of fun with this one. Um, Absolutely. Jay- I'm really curious to see what people, you know, I, w- I want to know two things. What was your favorite match of Sean Waltman's? And I also am curious to hear, you know, which which uh, version of him did you enjoy the most? Was it the one, two, three kid? Was it him as six in WCW, or was it X-Pac in WWE slash WWF after that? or anything in TNA that followed. So I'm really curious, you know, which version of Sean did you enjoy the most, and what was your favorite match of his? Hell yeah. Well, that being said, guys, we're going to wrap things up here again. Let us know your thoughts, your feedback, your comments. We'd love to hear from you guys. Let us know in the comments section. Let us know on social media. We'll see you guys next time for another episode of Wrestling Retrospective, looking at the career highlights of all your favorite wrestlers. I'm Connor AKOK Fave. That's Jake DeMarco at Countdown. And we'll see you guys next time. Take care, and as always, take it easy.